0: Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Jenny Pietro, PwC's Vice Chair for Health Industries, working across pharmaceuticals, medtech, payers, and providers. And I'm
1: Igor Belakranitsky, a principal with PwC Strategy and where I get to help leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. And today we will be talking about the present and the future of academic medical centers. It's an important topic for us and one that the Health Research Institute has covered in the past. And who better to cover this topic today than Aparna Kumar and John Capalbo. Aparna is a returning guest and one of our most popular guests. And she has been with us before to talk about some of the issues in academic medicine and development of new clinicians and the shortages that we're facing. And John is new to the podcast. So John and Aparna, welcome. Thanks, Igor. Happy to be here.
2: Yeah, thank you. Glad to be invited back.
1: Excellent. It's an interesting time to be an academic medical center. On one hand, it's a great time to be an academic medical center because your three missions, clinical, research, and teaching are in higher demand than ever. People need more care than ever. People are clamoring for more clinicians than ever, and we're experiencing a great shortage. Also, we have a greater need than ever for more research. And so everything that you do as an academic medical center, there's people outside your door clamoring for more, which is a great place to be. However, it is also a very challenging time to be an academic medical center because doing more care, more research and more teaching requires a lot more resources. And we're all constrained for resources, including, as we will talk about, we're constrained for talent. Also, the demand is not just for more, but for better and for different. People don't just want more care. They want higher quality, more value and more equity in the care that they receive. They want research to be more inclusive. They want education to be more inclusive and affordable. So there's a demand for more, but also different and better. It's a tough equation to solve to do this and deliver and satisfy all of these stakeholders in a financially sustainable way. So Aparna and John, your thoughts on where the academic medical centers are today, where they're headed, how will they rise to this challenge of delivering more in a way that's higher quality, higher equity, higher value?
2: I think you really hit the nail on the head, Igor, because especially now when we try to think about what the pandemic has done, it really threw things into a tailspin across the healthcare systems, but in particular at academic medical centers. And it's fundamentally shifted the way AMCs think about and plan for the future because they have to now balance not just the financial pressures of recovering lost clinical revenue. Thinking about greater access and greater equity from a clinical care standpoint, but also the reality that the future physicians that are being educated in their system need to be trained differently. And because of this position that ANCs occupy in the national provider landscape, their position is unique because of the training and education that happens within the ANCs, they're almost singularly responsible For supplying the clinical workforce that we've identified as a critical need in the health system. And so, looking at things like digitization, telehealth, remote learning, remote education, and all these precarious economic realities that they have to balance and creating strategies to remain sustainable and plan for another event such as the one that we've all lived through. I think the question about access in particular, is an interesting one because we understand that there is a physician shortage in the country. But if we double click on that hypothesis a little more, the acute shortage really is in training and supplying primary care physicians to rural, underserved areas, to urban areas. And here's another opportunity that has really presented itself during the pandemic, where the adoption of virtual care to a certain degree can be used to alleviate some of those pressures.
3: Completely agree, Parna. Really, when you step back and take a look at the role of AMCs in the broader provider landscape, and what's been happening there, this is where size really starts to become a big factor. We've seen quite a bit of consolidation and expansion in some of these large AMC health systems over the past few years. We're seeing more AMCs focus on building out their community hospital and ambulatory networks, essentially aiming to get closer to where their patients live, What they're doing here is they're really creating a hub-and-spoke structure with the primary mothership hospital at the center, which is where the lion's share of complex care, research, and training is performed. And the benefits of this strategy are really threefold. One, AMCs have never been known to be the lowest cost option out there they're not only not immune, but they're probably more vulnerable than others to the rising costs of healthcare. With a broader community hospital and ambulatory network, they benefit from providing more efficient care in a lower cost environment. And they don't need to lose all of the volume that's flowing away from the acute care environment now due to advances in medical technology, value-based incentives, things like that. Second, the networks that they're building here also provide AMCs with a built-in source of ongoing referrals when the most highly acute cases walk into the community hospital emergency department or ambulatory clinic, as well as providing a wraparound services for post-acute Hair. And what that does is it helps to insulate the AMC mothership hospital from potential competitive pressures coming from other AMCs or even private networks with deep pockets moving into the high acuity care space. And lastly, by building these networks, AMCs are turning the old town and gown divide onto its head. And what that is, if you're not familiar with it, is there's been a traditional cultural divide between the academicians and the researchers that live in the primary AMC and the community docs that are out there really focused on clinical care. The idea here is that with a tight hub and spoke design, AMC health systems will be able to create a bidirectional flow of information that can benefit all three missions flowing out of the AMC to the community are going to be newly developed evidence-based care protocols, research findings, and access to clinical trials. Whereas on the community side, community docs will contribute their own learnings about population health needs. They can bring a broader and more diverse patient profile and health data sets to research endeavors. And they can also provide residents and fellows with a more varied set of cases from which to learn. So... There's a lot of good that can come out of this strategy, and that's why you're seeing so many ANCs lean into this kind of expansion.
0: That's great. John, just pulling on that thread a little bit more, let's talk priorities. Could you share just what are the current priorities from a research, research funding, and clinical perspective, and how does it all tie together?
3: Thanks, Jenny. Yeah, that's a really big one. So research has been undergoing major changes since even before the pandemic. And like so many areas of healthcare and life in general, COVID has only supercharged that disruption. Just prior to the pandemic, I helped to develop a perspective on what it would take for ANCs to separate themselves from the pack in the eyes of research funders. And the insights that we developed there were honestly pretty surprising. Some of the trends that we saw were things like, 80% of clinical trials failed to meet their enrollment goals. And this was largely due to lacking controls around feasibility approvals prior to submission, some less than ideal patient targeting and recruitment processes and things like that. Another was that AMCs specifically had been steadily losing share of industry-funded trials to non-AMC clinical research organizations. That's an area where AMCs had traditionally been the leaders, but now all these smaller focused CROs were coming in and starting to take some of those studies away from them. And lastly, protocols behind the trials themselves had become vastly more complex. We talked to one CMO who told us that because the requirements for trial qualification had become so targeted, for example, trials only want patients with specific biomarkers, things like that, they were having to keep trials open longer while they kept searching for these what he called zebras, meaning patients with all the special stripes that fit the profile needed for the specific trial. So... You've got all of that as a background, and then along comes COVID. And for a while there, like everything else, in many cases, research just stopped. But when the immediate crisis subsided a bit, the industry was able to pick up its head, look around, and realize that they had all these cool toys on the shelf that had largely gone unplayed with for a while. They realized that trials could be conducted remotely. That with the right set of wearable technology combined with virtual care, telehealth check-ins, trial participants in many cases could continue to take part and results could be recorded without having to bring people into the clinic. What that meant was that many barriers were dropped. You no longer had to be within commuting distance from your research team. Your schedule no longer had to line up exactly with the clinician's schedules to make sure that you could have your check-ins. And this meant that a broader and more diverse population could theoretically now participate in research, which, of course, would improve the quality of research fundings, as well as the inclusivity and insights of the interventions that were developed. The role of data also grabbed more of its share of the spotlight during COVID with provider consortia organizations entering into agreements to share de-identified patient data. And that helped to provide researchers with these troves of very diverse patient insights. And it also helped to push research based on real world evidence to the forefront, which ideally should help solve some of the zebra dilemma that I talked about before. And I think that in all of this, we're starting to see a view of the future where collaboration between researchers, research organizations, the role of patient data, whether through EHRs or wearables or other quantified self, resources. And even somewhat controversially, but the potential monetization of some of these data sets are likely to combine to continue to drive innovation and discovery and hopefully do that in an even more diverse and equitable way.
0: John, you mentioned some of the monetization and funding, maybe Aparna. I think we're all acutely aware of the financial pressures within the AMC systems and just the cumbersome process and overhead that's currently in the system today. Can you share a little bit about what you're seeing relative to alternative funding mechanisms? Yes,
2: of course. This has been on the forefront of the AMC itself for a number of years now, even pre-pandemic. Research is widely known in the community to be a loss leader. So there's a statistic that goes that for every dollar in research funding that an academic medical center receives, they have to invest about 50 cents of their own money to sustain that research and conduct it. But on the other hand, research is what primarily drives the eminence and the credibility of an ANC. There's no way to get around that. Public funded research in general has little expectation or incentive to be profitable. That's just the way that the system has been set up. But the financial pressures within the ANCs have forced them to look at collaborations with private institutions through partnerships based on data. Like John mentioned, population health, generally collaborations that fall just short of a full-fledged merger. But in the development of these collaborative partnerships, there is a certain discipline that the private sector brings to research operations that can tie it closer to productivity expectations, sustainability expectations, perhaps even profitability expectations. It's almost causing a divergence and a branching between publicly funded research and then private funded research in the way that research is being seen from an operational perspective. Thanks, Aparna.
0: John, we've covered quite a lot here. Are there any other areas that you think require further attention?
3: Yeah, Jenny. For me, nursing comes to the top of the list. And kind of expanding on that, updating our academic programs in general to teach our future clinicians to do two things that I think are really essential. One, think about how to redefine how healthcare works as a day-to-day experience for those who are providing it. And two, how to develop self-care skills. If we take nursing as an example, even before the pandemic, we were advising our higher ed clients to invest in your nursing programs. We were doing that because we were seeing HRSA projections of nursing shortages across the country, growing demand and aging workforce. And correspondingly, we were seeing sort of an insatiable enrollment demand at nursing schools. And then came COVID, and what was already a pretty severe crunch in nursing became what really is an all-out crisis. We've got massive nurse shortages springing up around the country, not to mention the astronomical costs for provider organizations who are trying to fulfill their needs with an increasingly limited supply of nurses. But all of these troubles that we're facing now have very reasonable origins that I think we really need to learn from. For example, I was speaking with a client a little while ago and was told that nurses in their academic programs and their clinics were sick of hearing the word resilience. And when I heard that, I didn't quite understand why. But when the client began connecting the dots, it really did make sense to me because what we've asked our nurses and other frontline workers to do over the past two years has been absolutely devastating for so many of them. They've been under a kind of daily strain that personally, I can't even imagine. And to go back to that comment about resilience, many of them feel that they're being told to just get through it, that it's a sign of strength not to succumb to the extreme stress that they're feeling. So a lot of them just step away. But the other side of that is, well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe we shouldn't be asking our nurses and frontline workers to just be resilient. Maybe we should be thinking about what we can learn from the experiences of these people over the last two years and how we need to adjust our own thinking on exactly what it is they need to be prepared for in their training and what kind of a voice they should have in defining standards in their own personal and professional experiences. So giving nurses and frontline workers the tools that they need to be both fulfilled in their day-to-day professional lives while maintaining a healthy sense of well-being and control over their environment, those are areas where I think our training programs can and should really be leaning in over the coming years.
1: That's a great story, John, and thanks for sharing that. And as I listened to both of you You're laying out some of these key changes that have to happen on the clinical side, on the research side, on the teaching side. Aparna, perhaps, would you recap for us what should the top priority be going forward for an academic medical center on the clinical side, on the research side, on the teaching side, just to boil up some of these learnings and takeaways to the top three priorities?
2: Of course. And I would apply a value test to each of these three core priorities of an ANC. So from an education standpoint, if we look at how we're training the workforce to use technology to their advantage and not to be as much of an administrative burden as it is perceived to be today, how can wellness be integrated into the curriculum? And to the point that John made earlier, which was an excellent one, we need to change our expectations for the clinical workforce to thrive as much as we need them to be resilient. And let's not also forget the softer skills of management, communication, and leadership because these folks in the workforce that are being trained at the AMC are the leaders of the system tomorrow and set the strategies for the system for the years to come. From a research standpoint, we've talked about looking at value-driven collaboration. So how can partnerships be reimagined between academia and the industry, academia where things move perhaps a little slowly, and the industry which typically has more tangible expectations and rigor associated with outcomes. And then last but not the least, from a clinical staffing standpoint, it still stands to be seen if we have overcorrected for the physician shortage issue by placing too much of a burden on nurses and advanced practice providers. While in the 1980s, the distribution of clinical versus other revenues at an academic medical center was typically 20-80, now that has almost inverted. So there's a tremendous amount of financial pressure on the clinical mission to sustain the academic missions. And while no one's really arguing that it needs to be done, there has to be a clearer path to that financial sustainability from a systemic standpoint that ANCs are still trying to figure out i think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for ANCs to be at the forefront of tackling issues such as access equity quality of care pathbreaking research and so on but the sustainability question needs to be answered sooner rather than later
1: thank you aparna and of course philanthropy will play a large role in being part of that answer as well. And I'll refer our listeners to a previous episode we've done with you on the topic of the future of philanthropy in healthcare. And so the two of you have painted a very compelling vision of the emerging AMC of the future that is better aligned internally across its three missions and also better aligned to the communities that it serves In terms of their needs, their priorities, their challenge for more innovation, more value, more quality, more equity. It is a compelling vision. And we've also heard that when you come to the boundary between town and gown, you may find a zebra there waiting for you. So thank you very much for spending time with us today and sharing your insights about the AMCs with Jenny and me. For more on these topics, and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health.
0: This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.